Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Kate Whittier has it all. A loving, even-keeled husband, two great kids, a beautiful home in Southern California. But Kate is living a lie in a desperate attempt to create for her children the safe, happy family she never had. She's been hiding a dark secret for decades. Today we're going to talk with writer, editor, and storyteller Anastasia Zadek about her debut novel, Blurred Fates, which addresses issues of mental health and family dysfunction, among other themes. Anastasia Zadek is the Director of Operations for San Diego Writers Festival. She sits on the board of the literary nonprofit So Say We All. She regularly performs in narrative nonfiction showcases. She lives in San Diego with her husband and their empty nest rescue dog, Charlie. Anastasia Zadek, uh, pleasure to welcome you to Access Utah. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Am I pronouncing your name correctly? It is. Yes, it's Anastasia Zadek. Okay, very good. Um, it's a tricky one. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> very good. Uh, well, congratulations on the novel. It's your debut novel. It's getting uh, good reviews and uh, seems to be doing quite well. Yeah, it's been a, it's been an exciting couple of weeks since it came out um, August second, and uh, it's been a whirlwind. I would have to say. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, totally unexpected. Many things that I just did not expect, but um, but also just it's it's been great to have the book out. To readers, and it's exciting to start getting feedback from people. What, what didn't you expect? Um, I, you know, it's funny. I, I, it, people talked about how all-consuming a book launch is, and I kept trying to Im- imagine how that could be um, because I figured all the hard work had been done in the writing and the editing and getting the getting it published. But there is so much work with a launch itself. Um, just get, dealing with the press and the trying to get get the book out to the public. I think that's one of the biggest challenges for authors these days. There are so many books out there, and how do you get readers to know that your book is there for them to consume? So, you know, the, the publicity all comes before the book is actually launched, which was also something that I did not know before I did this. And, of course, there's publicity afterwards as well, like, you know, you and I talking right now. But a lot of it is done pre-publication so that you can start to generate a buzz about the book before it before it launches. Mm-hmm. So that was a bit unexpected, yeah. Uh, there's another factor. I've talked with this about authors uh, with authors. Um, there's a delay, right? You you've uh, you've put the book to bed. I don't know how long ago, right? And now you're out talking about it. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And in this in the case of this book, I wrote the first draft many years ago. And in, through a variety of different twists and turns in my own life, it ended up sitting in a drawer for a number of years. And then I pulled it back out and did some more work on it. So it's been a part of my life for a very long time. But for the last, you know, you, you, the, the last draft I saw before it went to print was months ago. Yeah. So it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's a very long process. And something that I think a lot of debut authors, the publishing process itself is, is its own animal that you have mm-hmm. to kind of learn and, and get used to. Mm-hmm. Well, exciting, and congratulations. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about, about you and your, you know, your background before we jump into uh, Blurred Fates. Sure. Um, so I understand, uh, reading some interviews, that uh, you, you were one of those kids who uh, would go under the covers after Lights Out with a flashlight to read. Right? Oh, <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> We were we were a reading family. Um, my my parents read to us when we were small, and then as soon as we could read, we were encouraged to do so 
all the time. This was, of course, before there was a lot of TV. And, you know, we didn't even I, I, I remember not even having a TV for some portion of my childhood. Um, then we had a black and white with the rabbit ears. And um, so reading was our entertainment. And my dad used to read to us after dinner. We read devotions after dinner. Um, and then we would go to the library and get books out. And I was the fourth of five kids. So I had three older brothers and sisters. So whenever I would run out of the books that I had gotten from the library, I would read the ones that my older brothers and sisters had. So it kind of helped me advance my reading level um, just by necessity. And I, it was, yes, I would read under the covers. I would read in the car. I could read anywhere. Um, and so books became a huge, and to this day, I've stacked the books everywhere in my house. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm like a kid in a candy shop in a bookstore. I can't stop myself. Yeah. And it's something we've, we've given to our kids, too, at, at the end of uh, school, every, at both Christmas and in the summer, we would celebrate the end of school by going to the local Barnes & Noble, and my kids, we would spend hours in the stacks just sitting and picking out books for the summer or for um, the holiday vacation. So it's something that I believe in strongly. Books are a way of expanding your world and living in someone else's shoes and reading is critically important to me personally, and I think also just to society at large. Mm. Uh, you were a storyteller as a kid. I understand that was good. I was. Kind of a natural storyteller. I, <laughs> I come from a generation of, uh, it goes back generations. My grandfather was a huge storyteller, and um, he would tell us stories that, that we all believed, but I didn't find out till much later in life. In fact, I was a, a in my 40s or 50s, and I was having a conversation with my dad, and I told, you know, related something about some a story my grandfather had told us that I was not the only one to believe. All five of, you know, all five of us believed it. All my four brothers and sisters and I. And my dad said, you know, that wasn't true. Like <laughs> <laughs> it was the story of how my grandfather came to the United States, and it was it was incredibly elaborate. He had he, had, he said he came over on a boat and he tied his shoes to his head and had a bowie knife in his teeth, and he took a swan dive off the front of the boat, and all of that was made up. Um, so I, I come from a long line of storytellers. My father was a minister, which he was a great order, and he basically, I viewed sermons as stories. And so I feel like I've been hearing stories my whole life. Um, when we were little kids, after dinner, we would each be given three minutes to tell the most important or interesting thing that happened to us that day. And so we all became very good at instant storytelling and also at listening to each other's stories, which I think was an important part of getting to know each other and um, forging relationships that have lasted my whole life. Mm. And you were and ju- now I love, to- yeah, now I love telling stories to strangers. So it's yeah. <laughs> kind the, of, yeah, there's a three lo- through line there. Yes. Yeah, um, definitely. You're, you're, you wrote in journals. Uh, I'm reading here from an interview you gave. Um, oh, yeah. Pink Diaries of Your Childhood, Puffy Fabric Journals of a Confessional Teenager, Classic Moleskin Journals of uh, Your Later uh, Years. Um, so um, what did that do for you? And then and then, what does, I guess, you know, writing fiction and uh, other things write do for you? So as a kid, I think... You know, I remember the first diary I got, which I think is the one I'm referring to in that interview. It was pink, and it was that vinyl, like those puffy vinyl diaries with a key and a lock. And I would write every day almost in it about just what happened during my day. And I remember thinking that it was super secret. 
and I would lock it and I would hide it. Um, and then that, I think it was just my way of kind of processing, even as a kid, what was going on in my life, but without any real like intellectual processing, it was just more of a recording of my day or who liked who and what had happened at school. And then as I got older and moved on to writing in fabric color covered journals in my high school and college years where a lot of it was more – that was a little bit more intellectual. I was trying to figure out my life and who I was. I would jot down poems that I had read that I that moved me. Um, and then I moved into the mulk and those black ones with the, you know, the, the elastic wrap. And it became more of a cathartic thing as I moved into adulthood. And I would use it as a way of – kind of working through my issues. It was almost like my journal became a therapist for me, a confessional place to go and, and write down not just what was happening, but how I felt about it and what it meant to me. And that kind of led into the idea of writing some fiction based on experiences that I'd had, experiences that I'd heard about. But fiction gives you a little more latitude so you can, you know, you can move away from the truth and elaborate and, and make things happen to your characters that, that didn't happen in your own life. So, um, but it's all informed. Everything that I wrote in Blurred Fates is informed by experiences that I've had or experiences that I know other people have had. What is the experience like? Maybe you remember the first time you... Uh, for example, maybe you're in front of a storytelling uh, a situation or or wrote it down, you know, something that was secret. You know, it's locked away, quote unquote, in your in your journal. Now you're sharing mm-hmm. it with perfect strangers. What uh, what is that like? So the, the very first time I did that was for this organization. So say we all, which is a storytelling organization in San Diego, that's their motto is helping people tell their stories and tell them better. And they have a whole process that they work with each writer that's selected for their um, their events. And you're assigned a writing coach and a performance coach. And then you work with the other writers that have been selected as well and sort of a mini read and critique. And so the story, even though it's a short period of time, it's about a month long from the time that you submit the story to the time that you perform it, it's pretty intense. But it's also um, they give you a lot of guidance and a lot of support. And my writing coach was actually really good. I wrote a story. My first story was to the theme Parasite. And it was a story about my stepdaughter and addiction issues that she was struggling with and sort of the history of her family dynamic and, and, uh, and our dynamic with her as, you know, my husband and, and me as a stepmother. And when I first brought it to the writing coach and the performance coach, too, they they said, you know, you need to you need to have a little bit more empathy here. You need to um, see it from the other from the other side. And so it turned. It was it was really advice that I needed to hear because I think that one of the dangers of writing narrative nonfiction is that can it just be a way for people to spill their experiences out, which can be kind of angry and blamey. And and they were, you know, making me look at it from a broader perspective, which helped me turn it from a personal story into a universal story so that people in the audience could relate to it. And it, it was incredibly, I was so nervous 
I remember the hour beforehand just sort of pacing around and thinking, how are you going to do this? You're going to stand up in front of 200 strangers and tell one of the hardest stories of your life. And I found that it was really freeing in a lot of ways. And though it was difficult, afterwards people came up to me and talked to me about their own experiences. And it made me realize that there's so many people out there in the world struggling with the same kind of issues and they just don't have, they don't, they feel like they're very alone with it. And when you read a story like that or tell a story of your own life and you try to kind of see it from the perspective, not just your own, but the perspective, in this case, the perspective of my stepdaughter, the perspective of my husband, that it opens that up to all of the people in the audience. They can, they can see themselves in the different, the, the different roles. And it's been, yeah, it's been a great experience for me, but it, it is very nerve wracking. And uh, there have been a couple of times where I've told a story and I don't actually remember the experience of telling it because it goes to a really deep emotional level. And afterwards I'm like asking people like, how did that go? Like, I, I, I literally don't remember it. It's like I go into a different zone um, so it's, it, it can be, yeah, it's a little daunting at times, mm-hmm. but I urge everyone who wants to try to explore it to do it because it, it, it will change your life. Storytelling can change your life. Well, let's uh, take a break. When we come back, I want to uh, jump into the novel. Uh, uh, this is, uh, Anastasia Zadek's uh, debut novel, Blurred Fates. Um, and we'll talk about it following this break. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams, we're talking with uh, the writer Anastasia Zadek. Uh, her debut novel, Blurred Fates, is just out and available. Um, we're talking about that on the program uh, today. Um, so I want to just read uh, maybe the first uh, couple of paragraphs of, of the blurb here and then uh, have you uh, talk about this. Uh, Kate Whittier has it all, a loving, even-keeled husband, two great kids, a beautiful home in Southern California, but Kate is living a lie in a desperate attempt to create for her children the safe, happy family she never had. She's been hiding dark secrets for decades, things she's convinced make her unworthy of her well-born husband Jacob and the privileged life she's uh, he has provided. Then one ordinary evening, always dependable Jacob confesses to a drunken sexual indiscretion he doesn't quite remember, and Kate cracks open. Molten memories rise to the surface, hiding in the dark. Her brothers whisper in her ear, crying out, not knowing knowing no one will hear. Along with the memories, volatile emotions swirl, a sign Kate fears that mental illness that took her mother has finally come for her. That's uh, Kind of the, uh, gives you a flavor of this. Um, so, uh, Anastasia Zadek, uh, how did this begin? What inspired you to write uh, Blurred Fates? So, uh, the inspiration came from the realization that, I, so I was living in, and this story, first of all, I should say, this story is not autobiographical in any way. Um, that's been a, it's been an issue. It actually came up yesterday. A friend was telling me that she, when she first started reading it, she was like, I just didn't really know you. And I was like, no, it's not my story. Um, so I first want to say that. But I, I was living in Southern California with, uh, you know, I have my husband and two kids. And so that part was kind of like an experience that I was having myself is 
this, I had this fairly from the outside idyllic life. And, um, but in, inside I was struggling with a lot of things that, you know, many people struggle with. My, my mother had been diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's disease. I had worked in the field of memory disorder. So I knew what we were going to be facing as a family going forward. Um, was trying to be supportive of my dad and my mom and, you know, my siblings. And at the same time, my stepdaughter came to live with us and she was 15 and she did not want to be living with us. And her, she came under duress because her mom was struggling with some addiction and mental health issues. And about a year after she came to live with us, her mom died of a drug overdose. And I was, found myself just feeling that inside I was just, my life was chaos. But the impression I was giving to the world every day was that everything was great. And I would look around me and I would think everyone else seems to just have everything together. How is my life just falling apart on the inside? And about, I didn't start writing the book until about 10 years later when I was sort of through that period of my life, had some space from it. But I realized that while I was in that struggle, on occasion when I would discuss it with other people, I would hear from them that they had their own inner struggles. And I began to realize that back in the early 2000s in particular, people just didn't talk about mental health issues. People didn't talk about the struggles in their families. And so you were left with this impression that you were the only one dealing with it. And I wanted to create for people a place where they could see that maybe the, the behavior that you're seeing from someone is due to something that you just know nothing about. And to create empathy for others that when you see someone and they're doing, they're behaving in a way or reacting to something in a way that doesn't seem reasonable to you, that you don't know anything about their past or the things that they might be feeling or dealing with that morning. Um, you know, sometimes I remind myself when someone behaves at the grocery store in an impatient manner or cuts me off in traffic, I try to say to myself, you know, you don't know, maybe they just got a really bad, you know, piece of medical news or something happened at work and it has nothing to do with you and just give them some space. Um, not that, the, you know, there aren't people who behave badly for no reason, but I think for the, for the most part, if we, if we extend that, that grace to other people, it will make the world a better place. So um, that's the sort of the inspiration for writing it. And I, I took a character that I felt like I could have run into at Starbucks that morning and I placed her in a situation and said, what if this happened? What, what would come next? And then I just let the story kind of flow from there. Uh, did you know the uh, Did you know the end when you when you began? Some writers do it that way; other writers don't. I did not know the end. I am I am what they consider, and it's it, it, there's a dichotomy out there in the writing world: being either a plotter, somebody who outlines and has everything determined from the start, or a seat of the pants writer. And I'm definitely a seat of the pants writer. Um, I I remember I heard an interview with George R.R. R. Martin, and he said that for him, it's like he plants the seeds of his characters, and then he waters them, and he just lets them grow, and he sees where they, you know, how they're going to entangle with each other, and he's always amazed at the things that come to him when he hasn't planned it, and that's the way I write as well. I sit down in front of the empty page, and I think, well, what would happen next, and 
of course, in the editing process, things do change. So I'm not going to say that that the the ending didn't change from the the first draft to the what you're reading um, changed over time for a variety of reasons. But um, the first time I wrote it, I actually I found myself writing each chapter like a mini story uh, with a beginning, a middle, and the end, and then in between the first and the second draft, I went to a writer's conference and the keynote speaker was talking about how you have to end each chapter, not with a cliffhanger, but with something unresolved so that the reader is encouraged to turn the page and find out what happens next. And so in the rewrite, I tried to do that. And as a result, I had to put some unknown threads kind of through the whole story. And that that had a big, it shifted from what I originally wrote to something that now a lot of people are considering a bit of a thriller. But I think that was because of that idea of creating, um, you know, lack of resolution throughout the book. Mm-hmm. Tell me about Kate. She's a fascinating character. Of course, we have, you know, the trauma, uh, suppressed memory, um, you know, secrets, lies. She is, uh, she has not had a happy uh, childhood, right? She's desperately trying to provide that for her children, but she goes about it in an mm-hmm. interesting way, but, you know, through, I guess, suppressing those things from her past. Yeah, so she suppresses a lot of her past, but she and she's basically trying to create something that she's never seen. She doesn't know what a happy family looks like. So she's trying to create it from advice from a therapist that she sees on and off, a lot of self-help books. And she is relying on her husband, who she believes has, you know, a view on what a normal happy family should look like. And so when things start to go south, she doesn't, or sideways, she doesn't, um, she, she doesn't know where to turn. And that's part of it. And I think that that's also not unusual. I've met a lot of people who when you have a traumatic childhood or a dysfunctional family growing up, there's this, like, you feel lost at sea, kind of. There's, you don't know exactly what you're supposed to be doing. I had the good, great good fortune of growing up in a very stable family and, dare I say, happy. And so for me, it was more recreating what I already knew. But for a lot of people, it's, it's trying to create something out of thin air. And so... When things go badly with her husband, it's not only a loss of trust, but it's also this this stable person that was supposed to help her create this is suddenly not that source of stability, and that throws her for a loop as well. But what I, what I really wanted to address was how we can become trapped by the things we don't talk about, and that's what happens to her. And without giving away too much, she finds herself in a situation where his indiscretion triggers her in ways that she didn't see coming. And she finds that she's trapped in this situation where she can either confess why she's reacting the way she is, which would mean revealing her past, which she's convinced will ruin her life, or keep hiding it. But then the risk is that she starts to feel like she's losing herself. And so it's a, it's a, it's a no-win situation for her. That is a that is a powerful conflict, isn't it? Um, I want to read something that uh, that you uh, said. Um, let's see. 
what I uh, also ended up writing, this is Anastasia Zadek, was about the power of the things we hide. Uh, that's, a, that's a great phrase, power of things we hide. How secrets can become lies, both of omission and commission. How covering things up with more secrets and lies often compounds problems. How people sometimes find themselves caught in a sticky web of their own making, playing the role of spider and fly simultaneously. I love that phrase, playing the role of spider and fly simultaneously. I think we could relate to that, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think we've all we've all found ourselves in those situations where you something goes wrong, and your first instinct is to, <laughs> is to hide it. But often, and 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 I, 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 one of the things that always struck me is when you're starting a relationship, as she was with somebody that she felt was better than her. Kate feels like her husband is a better person than she is. Um, she describes him early on as practically perfect, and so. When do you tell somebody something that is a, something you're ashamed of or a, a, something you've always kept hidden? You don't want to tell it at the beginning of a relationship for most people. You don't want to drop that. But if at some point it does become a lie when, when it is, it, particularly if it's impacting your relationship and the way that you're functioning in life. I think that I'm not an, I'm not an advocate that we all have to tell each other all of our secrets. Trust me, but I think if there's a secret that is impacting your life and therefore impacting the lives of the people around you that you love, I think it's better to sh- to share that with someone. It doesn't necessarily have to be with your spouse or with your kids, but to share it with someone so that you can process it so that it doesn't have a ne- negative impact um, on the people you love. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of what the this I think that when we when we do find ourselves caught in that web the reason I was calling saying you're both a spider and the fly is because you're you created it and you know that so you're the spider but you're also caught in it and you can't escape it and so you've created your own trap and I think that the best way to get rid of that is to you know sweep it away mm. somehow if you just joined us, we're talking with writer Anastasia Zadek. We're talking about her debut novel, Blurred Fates. Uh, you can find her at AnastasiaZadek.com. Um, so one of the things Kate's dealing with is dealing with, to, you know, many people deal with, is trying to balance taking care of others, in this case her children, right, and protecting herself mm-hmm. and dealing with her own trauma. And that that could mm-hmm. be there could be some at least in your mind it could be competition between the two, right? Oh, absolutely. And I think that that's something particularly parents and and children feel. And when you're, I think there's a lot of people out there in the sandwich generation um, that are dealing with both their parents and their children. And there's this conflict between making sure that you take care of the people around you that that need you, but it's, it's that old, and I know this is a cliche, but it's that old put your own oxygen mask on first before you help others, because if we give too much away, we don't have any resources left. And so in her case, it's compounded by all of these, you know, all the trauma that she had as a kid. And so she doesn't have a lot of resources for herself. And until she begins to address that, then she's she's she doesn't have an oxygen mask, if that makes any sense. Um, so, yeah, that's it's. I think that's an issue that a lot of people will relate to in the book is finding that balance of 
self-care and caring for others and and also the balance between what do you keep to yourself what do you share with others what do you share with a therapist what do you deal with you know and, and in many cases people will journal about things that can help you process things um you can share with friends that you know will be open to it um one of the the issues that i know a lot of people face today is you know the the standard greeting out in our world is how are you or hey how are you and everyone says okay even though they're not okay and i have learned firsthand that you have to be careful about the audience that you choose to say no i'm not okay <laughs> because you have to make sure that that person is ready and willing to receive what you have to say and so that's another issue that i think is that is addressed in the book is finding the right sources of support and who 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 are those people in your life I'd like to have you talk a bit about memory. As you said, you uh, you you worked in neuropsychology research, right? Uh, a bit it got you interested in this uh, field of of memory, and that that certainly is uh, treated in the book. Um, how we process memory, how we experience it, how we suppress it, how it comes back, and you you said we we experience at least at times we experience memory viscerally. It, it, it can really have an yes. effect on us. Yes, I think particularly for for. Uh, experiences that you had as a child, you don't have the intellectual framework to understand what you're feeling and why. You just feel it in your bones, in your cells. And I think particularly strong emotions, I mean, a lot of people, their first memory is either something that was incredibly great or something that was incredibly painful or scary. And those are the memories that are stored on that visceral level. And many times people don't have the words to explain it. And so when it, those memories are triggered by an experience later in life, they may return to behaviors that they had as a child when, that first, when they first experienced it, and they don't understand why they're feeling the way they are. But as an adult, you can hopefully find the, the words and the framework to explain it on an intellectual level and help yourself, you know, put it in perspective. But um, memory is fascinating to me, and I think in the book, you have the mix of the inciting incident in the book is something that the husband doesn't remember himself. He is told what happened by someone else, and then it, his lack, his, his sort of this experience that he doesn't quite remember triggers a memory for her that, she does, that she's experiencing viscerally and has not dealt with adequately and so she's basically you have this this interaction between his lack of memory and her memories and so the memory throughout the entire book is a big plays a big role in um she also later in the book has some experiences that are sort of disassociative and that she she basically closes off a whole portion of things that are happening to her because she just can't emotionally handle it and that's also a form of a memory, you know, disruption. But I'm also just fascinated by memory in general. I mean, one of the short stories that I, narrative nonfiction pieces that I told was, on its face, it was a story about gerbils, but it was actually a story about the memories that I had around my family having this world of gerbils and habit trails on the, t- on the uh, ping pong table in our basement. And in talking with my siblings, we all remembered it so differently. And that to me was fascinating that we all experienced the same thing, but 
because of our age at the time, because of our birth order, because of our personalities, we remembered it so differently. And I find that also to be an interesting thing, like collective memory that families have and how we, um, how we put our world together and then how our worlds collide sometimes because sometimes those memories and then, you know, in relationships, you might have the husband thinking one thing happened and the wife thinking something else happened. And they're both accurate. It's sort of like the he said, she said, and what really happened is three different perspectives. So I just find memory and family and interactions super interesting as a topic. Um, uh, you can find several of these stories we made reference to at, uh, at Anastasia Zodic's website, AnastasiaZodic.com. Yeah, I like that. I, I love that story. Um, the, the, uh, you, you got two gerbils because the, the, the pet shop owner said they're, they're uh, social animals. <laughs> you thought they were both male, I guess, about the same gender. It turned out not to be, <laughs> not to be the case. And you ended up with dozens of gerbils, right? Well, we ended up with, like, and that's the whole point of the story is I remember it being like 84 gerbils, but my siblings were like, no, it was maybe a couple dozen, but it was a lot of gerbils. We yeah. had a lot of gerbils and they just kept, they kept making, having babies after babies after babies. And we kept adding habit trail and eventually they started escaping and it was just, yeah, it was kind of a nightmare, but um, <laughs> it was funny because I remember it when I first called my, my little brother who named them and he couldn't. And I said, you know, do you remember Winnie and Hoppy? And he was like, what are you talking about? Like he didn't even remember, he didn't even remember their names. And I thought that was so bizarre because he named them. And I was like, wait, you don't remember them. Um, but then as we started talking, it all came back and we, it, it was, it was a really fun story to write because it involved my siblings and they're some of my best friends. So mm-hmm. it's a really fun story to write. Yeah. Um, and then when gerbil escapes, then your dad says, we're, we're done, right? So, but then you have to, we're done. Yeah. <laughs> that's it. That's um, it. Well, they, they, we, they started chewing through his speaker wires, and yeah, that was it. Then yeah. that was like, there was the, that was the final straw. <laughs> yeah. But it's interesting, in the middle of all that, um, you said that, um, you know, your husband, I think it was, suggested that this is not about gerbils, right? This is about memory. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. He was, he, 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 he takes credit for it to this yeah. day, but we were, yeah, we were talking about, he, he's a great, he's a great audience. He, he is always my first audience. So I read all my stories to him first and he, he often will help me in that way and say, you know, what you're really getting at is this. Um, and I think that's one of the interesting things about writing narrative nonfiction and fiction is that, or memoir is that, you know, sometimes for me at least, and maybe because I am a seat-of-the-pants writer, I'm surprised at what comes out. I will be writing something, and I'll think it's going one direction, and then I will read it back and realize that it's, that's not what it's about at all. And, um, it's, I, I, again, it just goes to the way that our minds work and memories, how, how they come to you, and sometimes one memory will inform the next memory and... But again, you know, memory is malleable and people have to, that's why I thought the gerbil story was so interesting because things that I was convinced had happened, you know, I talked to my older sister and she was like, no, 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 no. That was the mice that were in the wall. Like there was just whole, all, all sorts of things that I remembered wrong because I was a little girl. Mm-hmm. And, but it's, it, it also goes to that, like in terms of sometimes we will go through life with a faulty memory that is harmful and Sometimes we, we don't even know that we're misremembering something. Mm-hmm. We've stored it for so long as the misremembered version that we believe that it's the truth. 
I don't want to spend all the time on the gerbil story, but uh, but but, uh, but <laughs> you mentioned that you mentioned the mice in the walls. You <laughs> and this is emblematic. You know, your 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 sister keeps insisting I'm losing hair, and, yeah. and everybody's saying you you are not possibly losing hair. There's no witness to it. And then you go up to the attic and find out yes, there, there's some mice nests which are made from her hair. Exactly, exactly. And it's just, it's, it's funny because in that story, I actually talk about how our personalities played a role in what we remembered. And our personalities played a role in the people we, you know, we ended up becoming, which I think goes to another theme from Blurred Fate. Sorry to twist it back to that. But oh, yeah, yes, let's do It's this whole do. idea of, <laughs> of nature nurture, like what makes us who we are. Some of it is our DNA. Some of it is the experiences we've had. But in this book, I wanted to explore as well the idea that who you be- who you become is not just your nature and nurture. It's the nature and the nurture of the people that you interact with, um, your family members, your friends, your spouse, your the coworkers. You know, and it can be almost anything, and it, it or almost anybody that you meet. It can be a stranger can impact your life in a really meaningful way. So I think. That's one of the things that I think in the title kind of refers to the idea that our fates are blurry because they're impacted by so many things. And particularly if your memories are faulty, that blurs it even further. Um, So that's one of the things that I wanted to try to get at is that whole concept of how do we become who we are? What are those experiences? How can we when as we move forward in our lives, how can we process those experiences to live healthier, happier lives and to have more empathy for each other? Mm-hmm. Let's take another break. We'll come back with a brief final segment with Anastasia Zadek. Her debut novel is out, available now. Blurred Fates is the title. You can find out more um, about anything we've been talking about, including the book at AnastasiaZadek.com. We'll have more following this break. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. We have about uh, five or six minutes left with uh, in our conversation with Anastasia Zadek. Her debut novel called Blurred Fates is out and available now. And we're talking about that and uh, related topics. Uh, you can find her at AnastasiaZadek.com. And uh, she's involved in uh, narrative nonfiction storytelling as well, uh, editing, helping other writers. And uh, you can find... Uh, uh, a lot of those things at anesthesiazotic.com. Also, uh, some videos from her, from the story she's told, including the gerbil story that we made reference to at uh, that <laughs> website. Um, so I want to talk a bit about resilience, have you talk about resilience. I wonder, you know, as, as I'm reading the, the book, I'm hoping for, you know, resilience in Kate, right? Uh, this is a lot she's dealing with. And I wonder, is, is resilience nature or nurture? Is resilience something you're born with or something you can develop? interesting topic there's actually i i when i was you know this is something that came from one of the elements in the book that came from my own life is that i as a reader when i'm whenever i am facing something and with my raising my own kids i would go to the bookstore and try to find a book about it to see if there was um some expert out there that knew more than i did and I remember there was a whole book on raising resilient children and the idea that it can be taught. And so I think that for, yes, Kate is actually much stronger than she gives herself credit for 
at the beginning of the book and throughout, you know, when you think about it, as you read it, you real, you know, when you realize all the things that she's had to deal with, you realize that she's got this inner strength that um, it, it, she has to see it for, she has to be, she has to be shown by someone else, which, in, you know, in this case, there's a couple of different characters in the book that help her to see her own inner strength and to recognize that it's there. And I think as parents, that's what we have to do for our children is to show them that they have the strength. Um, and when it's, it goes to simple things, I have uh, just a few days ago, my husband and I were helping the, the, uh, one of our friend's daughters moved into a, a house nearby and we were helping her hang some stuff on her wall. And she's got a two-year-old and watching her interact with her two-year-old, you know, her little, the little girl fell and she just said, oopsie daisy, okay, brush yourself off, brush yourself off. And I realized watching the little girl's face as she, you know, as her mom was interacting with her, if she had reacted with the, oh my gosh, you know, she, the daughter was, she was on the verge of crying. But when her mom said that, you know, dust yourself off. And she, you know, she did, she wasn't hurt clearly. Like it, if, if she had been, I think the mom would have scooped her up and, and dealt with it, but she wasn't actually hurt. But I, when she looked to her mom, well, how am I supposed to react to this? And her mom gave her that, like, yeah, you got this. And I think as parents, we have to, to do that for our kids. And you, if you don't do it as kids, they can still learn it later in life. They can learn it from other people. You know, there's stories out there, uh, so many stories out there about if you have one person who believes in you and one person who gives you that confidence that you can get through all kinds of trials and tribulations in your life. And so I think that resilience is something that, yes, some people are – born resilient, but I think for those who are not, it's something you can learn. And I think it's something that you can also, if you have that, if you have a kernel of it inside you, it can be developed by the relationships you have with others. So Kate does find resilience. Yes. For those who are in, the, <laughs> when you first pick up the book, just know that, that she does find that. Yeah. That, that's reassuring. Uh, Cause you do get invested in it, right? Um, I want to yeah. talk, we, um, we just have about oh, two or three minutes left. I want to talk about uh, the power of humor. You, in several of your stories, and you can find these stories at uh, there, there there's humor. Uh, and I want to, and in unexpected places. For example, your, uh, your story, Putting the Fun in Funeral. Um, mm -hmm. you, you talk about uh, your, in the story, your, your father's dying, and then you, know, th then you have his funeral. There's a scene in the story where he's lying in his hospital bed. He says he needs to tell you something important. You lean in, and he <laughs> says, I've got coupons. I've got coupons. You must use these coupons. Uh, and then it <laughs> goes on from there. But um, the, the, you know, talk to me about uh, the importance of humor. For me, the funny thing about humor, and I guess it's kind of a funny statement, is that it takes a little while sometimes, but it's often the, the, the tra traumatic things that make the stories that are funny. You know, if you think about travel experiences that people have, and if everything's going smoothly, you know, how was your trip? It was great. But then there was that one thing that went wrong. And as they tell the story, it's hysterical. Like, <laughs> you can turn almost anything into a funny story. It's, it's your perspective on it. And with my dad, that, that story to me is that's actually my favorite piece that I've ever done, which sounds funny to say. My favorite story is a story about my dad's funeral. It, it, because it's also, it touches on all of the emotions. Um, when I read that story in the bar, people were uh, 
people were laughing, but people were also sniffling. There was there was some really touching moments in it, and it's about my dad and how he he was a very wise person, and so he gave out advice sometimes when you didn't want it. But when I thought that he was going to be giving me the greatest advice ever, because I thought he was about to, you know, he was, I was worried he was going to die on an operating table. And he told me that he had these Bobson gift cards to use. And it's, it's funny now, but at the time I was like, what? That's like, you're dying and that's what you want to tell me. Um, And of course he didn't, he didn't end up dying at that point, but we ended up using the Bobson gift cards, my siblings and I, and it was all about how my dad's, life and the things that he enjoyed were passed on to us in many ways. And so it's really about how he put joy into our lives mm. and that you can find joy in and humor in the saddest of moments and that the full spectrum of emotions are part of what makes us human. So I think when you can bring those out in a story or a book, it's, it makes it very relatable for people. Yeah, so. it, it it helps you to know them a, a, a little bit better, connect with them. Yeah. We don't have time to, we're out of time, but I just want to make reference and have people go and, and watch this, this story on anesthesiazotic.com. Your dad left notes for the minister for his funeral, <laughs> which, is, <laughs> which tells did. you tells he you a lot did. about your lot about your dad. Um, so we'll we'll have to leave it there. Um, the The book, the debut novel, is Blurred Fates. The author is Anastasia Zadek. You can find her at anastasiazotic.com. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Great fun. And uh, thanks for listening today. And as we're doing on uh, Tuesdays, we go out with Richard Ratliff and the Citizens Academy. Thank you for joining us in this third session of Utah Public Radio's Citizens Academy. We are airing this series of short programs in preparation for the coming November elections in an effort to provide a way of avoiding political conflict and restoring a degree of civility in our political processes. We are proposing an idea that might help. We call it political relationism. I am a political relationist. Maybe you are too. I hope so. You see, a political relationist can be a Republican, Democrat, independent, liberal, or conservative, rich or poor, male or female, old or young. In fact, Diversity strengthens our society if we are able to work together for the good of us all. And it may be a lot easier to accomplish than we might think. I explain political relationism with five simple statements. In our first session, we suggested that number one, the defining characteristic of society can be thought of as a big bundle of relationships. Without relationships, there is no society. An abundance of healthy relationships builds healthy societies. A preponderance of unhealthy relationships creates unhealthy societies. Right now, it seems that we have some work to do. In our second session, we explored number two, the idea that healthy relationships are more beneficial and cost less than unhealthy relationships. The worse a relationship, any relationship, the more harmful and costly it becomes. It pays to establish good relationships and improve bad ones. In this session, let's talk a bit about the third foundational statement of political relationism, the purpose of government. Our founding fathers began the Constitution of the United States of America with a very short statement setting forth six basic objectives of government. They call this statement 
the preamble. It reads, We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. That's a good list. A more perfect union, justice, domestic tranquility, common defense, the general welfare, the blessings of liberty. A common thread runs through these six objectives, setting forth a political, diplomatic, economic, and social environment that promotes a safe, happy society. That thread is good relationships. We are united by good relationships, even when we may disagree on some things. Justice is established in the fairness exhibited in our relationships. Tranquility is achieved with good relationships. The primary purpose of our common defense is to protect an environment where good relationships can flourish. Our general welfare is promoted by good institutional and individual relationships, and the blessings of liberty for all of us are a product of good relationships. The unfortunate victim of bad relationships is freedom. And when forces start gathering to chip away at this ideal society of good relationships, the focus of the Constitution is to restore these objectives with a government by the people, all the people together, within a structure designed to help us work through the differences that might otherwise divide us. The focus always being a more perfect union, justice, tranquility, a common defense, the general welfare, and the blessings of liberty. All of this on a foundation of healthy relationships where what unites us is stronger than whatever might otherwise divide us. I heard a story once about Benjamin Franklin who was asked as he left the Constitutional Convention, Well, Mr. Franklin, what kind of government did you give us? He is said to have answered, A democratic public, if you can keep it. I don't know if the story is exactly true, but I believe that we would be wise to heed the sentiment. The secret is in the binding thread of healthy relationships. Please join me next time to consider the fourth idea of relationism, how good government is conducted. This is Richard Ratliff and Citizens Academy. Thank you for listening. Till next time.